Welcome to the Setting the Scene podcast, a history podcast about the places featured in famous works of literature and entertainment. I'm your host, Mark Wright. Each episode will focus on the setting of a noteworthy play, book, film, or TV series. I may even focus on a work of art or a song. The settings are real, even if most of the works covered in this podcast are fictional. What I hope to convey is what a place was like at the time in which a famous work was set, and why the writer or artist may have chosen that particular setting for the work. In the course of these episodes, I might point out some ways in which a writer's portrayal of a setting may differ from the actual history of that place, but my intent is not to criticize great works. Rather, it's my goal to set the scene. Now, I hope that this series will give listeners a greater understanding of the historical backdrop of a particular place. What was life like at the time? What were the prevailing attitudes and ideas of people living in that place? Or what conceptions of that place influenced the writer's portrayal of that setting? Before I begin, I'd like to mention that I don't want to necessarily restrict this podcast only to real settings. Even fictitious backdrops contain echoes of real-world time and place so I might explore some fictitious settings somewhere down the line. But for now, I'll begin by exploring actual places that serve as a setting of well-known works of art and entertainment. And to begin this series, I'll take a look at Verona, the setting of William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. Two households, both alike, in dignity. In fair Verona, where we lay our scene, from ancient grudge break to new mutiny, where civil blood makes civil hands unclean. From forth the fatal loins of these two foes, a pair of star-crossed lovers take their life, whose misadventured piteous overthrows do with their death bury their parents' strife. This is how arguably the world's most famous love story begins. The question is, when Shakespeare wrote Romeo and Juliet in the 1590s, why did he choose to set this poignant tale of star-crossed lovers in Verona? The quaint hillsides of Verona, in northwest Italy, were certainly more obscure than the celebrated waterways of nearby Venice, or the venerated seats of power in Rome, the Vatican, and farther back in time, the Senate. So why did Shakespeare choose to set his tragic romance here? Well, the short answer is, he didn't. Shakespeare based his play on the 1562 narrative poem, The Tragical History of Romeus and Juliet, by the Bard's fellow Englishman, Arthur Brooke. Alas, Brooke met with his own tragic end a year after his poem was published. He died in a shipwreck in 1563, a year before Shakespeare's birth, on his way to defend Protestant Huguenots in a religious war in France. To read the opening argument of Brooke's work is to leave little doubt that Will Shakespeare borrowed heavily from its plot. Love hath inflamed twain by sudden sight, and both do grant the thing that both desire. They wed in shrift by counsel of a friar. Young Romeus climbs fair Juliet's bower by night. Three months he doth enjoy his chief delight. By Tybalt's rage provoked unto ire, He payeth death to Tybalt for his hire. A banished man he scapes by secret flight. New marriage is offered to his wife. She drinks a drink that seems to reave her breath. They bury her that sleeping yet hath life. Her husband hears the tidings of her death. He drinks his bane, and she with Romeo's knife. When she awakes herself, alas, she slayeth. Brooke's narrative goes on to set the scene of an idyllic hillside in Italy called Verona. There is beyond the Alps a town of ancient fame, whose bright renown yet shineth clear. Verona, minute name. 
built in a happy time, built on a fertile soil, maintained by the heavenly fates and by the townish toil, the fruitful hills above, the pleasant vales below, the silver stream with channel deep that through the town doth flow. So there in Brooks' work we see our star-crossed lovers, and there's the same fair scene that we see in the bard's work. Of course, scholars have generally lauded Shakespeare for writing a work that dramatically improves upon Brooks' less skilled prose. Shakespeare fleshed out the story, especially where it concerns some of the supporting characters. Shakespeare's friend Marcuccio and Juliet's romantic enabler, the nurse, especially. And thankfully, Shakespeare's ending was much less awkward and more focused on the tragedy of young love dash rather on the punishments rendered against those who aided the young lovers. Brooke has the apothecary hanged for supplying Romeo with deadly poison. But the important thing to note is that Shakespeare adapted an existing work, and Brooke wasn't crafting an original work himself. Brooke's poem was an adaptation and translation of Italian writer Matteo Bandello's Giulietta e Romeo. That story was part of Bandello's 1554 work, Novelle. Now, Bandello's work was immensely popular. It was translated into French, English, of course, and other languages. Traveling Italian theater troops in Shakespeare's day may have even performed an adaptation of Bandello's Giulietta e Romeo in London. So the bard may have had ample sources from which to mine his material, including other adaptations of Bandello into English subsequent to Brooks' poem. And source material is a term best used loosely when referring to this Verona love story, because for all its popularity, Bandello's Giulietta e Romeo was also not an original work. See, the fact is, Bandello derived his popular tale from a 1530 work by his countryman Luigi de Porto, called Giulietta e Romeo, and founded de Porto's Historia Novellamente Ritrovata di du, di du Nobili Amanti. This 1530 story is the first example of the, of the saga that includes the familiar names of the cursed lovers, the warring families, the Montecchi and Capuletti, which we will know as Montague and Capulet, and the setting of Verona. Now, even de Porto's work may have drawn inspiration from an earlier source. A 15th, a 15th century writer named Mizicio Salernitano wrote about the star-crossed love of a couple named Mariotto and Gianozzo. Could you imagine the marquee? Leo DiCaprio stars in the famous love story Mariotto and Gianoza. Doesn't quite have the same ring, if you ask me. Not only were the names different in this early story, but that love story was set in Siena, not Fair Verona. But still, it may have influenced De Porto's tale. And regardless of who wrote the first version, the important thing to note is that the Romeo and Juliet story comes from Italy in the early to mid-1500s. And by the time that Shakespeare was searching for ideas for plays for the Lord Chamberlain's men to perform in the mid-1590s, the Italian love story of Romeo and Juliet was a tale with which he was likely intimately familiar. So Shakespeare took an existing story and retained the setting in Verona, and although no direct evidence exists that the bard ever traveled to Italy, Verona and other Italian city-states were nonetheless a popular setting for a number of his plays. You have two gentlemen of Verona, and the merchant of Venice, to name a few examples. And of course, Othello's full original title was Othello. Uh, was the tragedy of Othello, the Moor of Venice. 
what made Italy a popular place for Shakespeare to set his plays, other than the fact that he liked to borrow the plots of popular Italian stories, may have had to do with Elizabethans in general were very interested in Italy during this time. Many of them could speak at least some Italian, and a number of them had actually traveled to visit Italy. So many Englishmen and women had actually spent some time there, or at least heard the fanciful tales told by those who had been there. And just as Hollywood was the mecca of the film industry in the 20th century and remains so today, Italy was considered the mecca of poetry in the 16th century. And if you've studied Shakespeare's plays, there's a good chance you studied his sonnets. Shakespeare developed his own sonnet form called the Shakespearean sonnet today. But many of Shakespeare's contemporaries used a different structure and rhyming scheme than Shakespeare employed in his sonnets. It was called the Petrarchan sonnet, and it was the sonnet form pioneered by the Italian poet Petrarch. In fact, the sonnet is an Italian word itself. And Marcuccio in Romeo and Juliet makes reference to Laura, the almost divine love that Petrarch's sonnet sequence addresses. So Italy held a popular place in the imaginations of the Elizabethan theater-goer, and the Italy of Shakespeare's imagination proved an ideal setting for some of his best-loved works. For Shakespeare, the city-states of Italy each contained a separate culture and traditions and rule of law, and the law and order that existed in those city-states was often a fragile place where the slightest provocation could descend into bloody conflict, sometimes in the form of an all-out street brawl. Romeo and Juliet believed that because of this violent culture in Verona, and Romeo's direct involvement in that blood feud, means that that setting will never be a safe haven for this loving couple. So they make plans to flee to a different city-state, Mantua. Their plan goes astray, of course, and the lovers take their lives in ironic fashion, rather than revealing their romance to their warring families. But was the real Verona a violent place, where old insular hostilities simmered just below the surface and threatened to disrupt the social order? Maybe so. But in Shakespeare's day, Verona was not a self-governed city-state. For nearly, for nearly 400 years, beginning in the early 1400s, Verona fell under the control of regional power Venice. So law and order was kept by regional authorities, rather than local families. But the backdrop of Romeo and Juliet seems to hearken to an earlier era, when the city was ruled by a dominant local family called the Scaligari. In the early 1300s, the ruling Scaligari lord was named Bartolomeo e della Scala. Bartolomeo gave refuge to the renowned writer Dante, who had been exiled from Florence. And in Dante's famous work, The Inferno, he mentions the warring Montecchi and Capoletti families from Verona, better known to us as the Capulets and Montagues. So maybe the Scaligari lords had to deal with these warring neighbors, and had to try to keep their bitter resentments in check. To the extent that Romeo and Juliet represents a real-life family feud, the source of that conflict most likely occurred in the first years of the 14th century. So Shakespeare's art may have had at least some small basis in real events in Verona, nearly 300 years before his play was first staged in London. But life, as they say, imitates art, and tourists to Verona today will find a multitude of sites paying homage to the Shakespeare play. There's a medieval Franciscan convent referred to as Juliet's Tomb. Charles Dickens reportedly visited the site as a way of paying homage to the beloved Shakespeare play. Then, of course, there's Juliet's House, where love-struck visitors have tried to recreate their own balcony scene. Now, there's just a few problems with this balcony idea. 
Juliet's house, while old enough to have housed a Romeo-smitten young Capulet, has apparently only had a balcony since the 1930s. Plus, Shakespeare's play never actually mentions a balcony. True, Romeo climbs a wall to get into Juliet's garden, where she's peering out her bedroom window longingly. But a balcony is not expressly mentioned in the text. And how could it be? The word balcony didn't even enter the English language until several hundred, not several hundred, until several years after Shakespeare's death. I'm doing this in one take, so enjoy the couple slips of the tongue. I think it gives it a more conversational style, but we'll see. So, the balcony word didn't even enter the English language until several years after Shakespeare's death. But soft, the yonder window Romeo peered into is today nearly always conceptualized as a doorway leading out onto a balcony. And Shakespeare would probably be okay with this staging. After all, the word balcony is a borrowing from Italian, and Shakespeare apparently had no qualms about borrowing from Italian sources. Verona seems to have the air of a romantic city these days, even if the love story it's most famous for ended in tragedy. Still, the tragic tale has resonated with audiences for many centuries, and thanks to the deft quill of Shakespeare, Romeo and Juliet, or Romeus and Julietta, continue to symbolize young love and lives taken too soon. If the Capaletti and Montecchi clans have been able to bury their feud, maybe Verona would be a less famous locale today. But knowing Shakespeare and the Italian scribes who inspired him and his countrymen, there were likely countless other stories they could have staged in this idyllic Italian setting. So I hope you've enjoyed this debut episode of the Setting the Scene podcast. I hope you learned why Verona, Italy, captured the attention of theater audiences in Elizabethan England, and why the town continues to symbolize love and tragic loss today. In the next episode, We'll journey to the land beyond the forest, an area whose name became synonymous with supernatural bloodsuckers in the horror genre. Until then, thanks for giving this new podcast a listen. My interest in creating this podcast sprang from my enjoyment of several great podcasts out there, most notably the History of English podcast by Kevin Stroud and the History of England podcast by David Crowther. I recommend these podcasts very highly. Until, the, until next time, thank you so much for listening.